0: Once you get your positioning, how do you actually structure a a story around it? So what is the best way to actually communicate your positioning?
1: Welcome everybody to the Strategy Show. I'm your host, Simon Severino, and I'm super excited because with us today, is someone who runs seven startups. She sold six, and one with a very nice price. One was sold for 1.7 billion. We will talk about that a lot. She has been CEO, COO, product marketer, and even sales uh, head, but she would like to do it a second time. Everybody say hello to April Dunford.
0: <laughs> Hi
1: it's so nice to be here So cool to have you here because you are a positioning guru your 10 steps of how to position right are super acclaimed on Amazon your book is doing so good obviously awesome thank you It's the title and it's it seems to be also the case <laughs> And you have some real success. You are not somebody who is saying, "Yeah, I I heard that you should do this," or somebody that just teaches stuff. But you are one of the these world's builders, one of the person who really do, and yes. they share what they learn. And these are the people that we really we really learn the most from. So it's so cool to have you here. And we will explore for the next half an hour your most successful sell how you sold the crm company for 1.7 billion but on the way you will tell us what went wrong and what 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 you really learned and how you came up with your 10 points of positioning what are you currently creating well you know
0: i i i wrote that book about a year and a half ago and um and since then I've been consulting like crazy. So I've been working a lot with startups, helping them work on their positioning. And I'm starting to see this interesting problem to be solved that that I really thought was an already solved problem, which is once you get your positioning, how do you actually structure a, a story around it? So what is the best way to actually communicate your positioning? And so, I have a way that I've been doing that for a long time, and I used it when I was a Vice President of Marketing. I'm using it with my clients today, but I'm trying to figure out how to teach that. And so there's a big gap between knowing how to do something yourself and kind of codifying it and putting a methodology around it so that you can teach it to other people and it doesn't come across as just gut feel. So I'm working on that right now.
1: Absolutely. So there are great people who can do stuff and they usually don't have interest in teaching and yeah. they also don't even if they would want to teach it they they have just an implicit knowledge and then there are the explicit the big professors etc who in most cases do not ever sell for 1.7 billion anything <laughs> And then there is something in between, and these people we have on our show. So it's so cool to have you here because there are not so many of these kinds. <laughs> and uh, tell us about the beginnings. How did the whole thing start? Why did it start? How did it start? Um, so uh, I'll,
0: I'll, I'll give you a few things. So, um, so my career i started out as a technology person i have a degree in engineering that's where i that's what i did in school but when i came out of school i landed and got a job at a startup and that startup got acquired my boss quit and i ended up in charge of the marketing department with i had no business running the marketing department i knew nothing about marketing but in the course of that job we repositioned a product that looked like it was a failure And it turned into a great success. And so after that, positioning kind of became my thing. Um, So I spent a long time studying it. I spent a long time doing it in companies. Um, The company you're talking about, the one where um, we had the massive exit, um, that company was interesting. Like it had started out positioned in the way most companies position themselves, which was kind of not very deliberately. So the founders had an idea, they were, they were building enterprise CRM. And at the time that was terrible positioning because there was already a giant company in the market where it was the undisputed leader of enterprise CRM. So uh, this is in the days before Salesforce. So there was a company called Siebel Systems and they were gigantic, 2 billion revenue, 8,000 employees, super, super successful company. So unsurprisingly, we're positioned in the exact same way. So we said, yeah, we're enterprise CRM too. So every time we went in to talk to a customer, the first thing the customers would ask us is, hey, so how are you better than Siebel? And the answer to that question was, we kind of weren't. Like, <laughs> in any way you could measure, we sort of weren't better than them. They had more customers than us. They had more revenue than us. They had more employees than us. Um, but we did have two things that we thought were really distinct. So we, uh, we have feature uh, that they couldn't copy and didn't have. And what it did was it allowed you to model relationships in a slightly different way. Um, and so we thought that was really important. So we always talked about it in demos. We'd come in and say, people would say, so how are you different? And we'd say, we have this thing. And so we would, we would bring it out and we would show it and it demoed great. It looked fantastic. we say, oh, you have this thing and it allows you to model relationships in a completely different way. And you could see customers, they'd look at it and go, hmm, interesting. That's that's really – so what do you use that for? And we'd say, anything you want. <laughs> and they'd say, okay, well, we don't know what we use that for. So what else have you got? And then we'd say – and then we'd show them the price. So we, what we had was desperation for deals. That's what we had. So, you know, because we were we were always running out of money, we had a hard time selling. So if you wanted cheap enterprise CRM, you know, we were willing to drop the price until it was something you might accept. Um, so this is this is not a good positioning. Like price only is not, uh, is not a good way to live. And, you know, all your competitor really has to do to beat you is drop their price if they feel like it you you're not making a lot of money even when you do close deals
1: um please, and so- everybody listening right now please take a second if you have a pen and paper write down right now what wor- what is your answer to that so if we ask you right now what right. is unique compared to your competitors write down that sentence right now right the feature which shouldn't be it should be some kind of a real tangible benefit on a high level and
0: well, we, can, we can get oh. into this the exact the exact steps you'd go through to actually do it
1: beautiful
0: isn't necessarily super obvious but i'll give you the example first then i'll work back so you know how we got out of this mess was um we what really happened was we hired a new sales rep so we were always firing sales reps because they weren't selling anything and so we had a new sales rep come in and uh and, and in the interview, my CEO is kind of a jerk to new sales reps. So my CEO said, give me one good reason to hire you. Why should we bring you into our company? And the sales rep was from New York. He had a little bad attitude. And so he leaned into my CEO and he says, I'll give you one good reason. You should hire me because my buddy is the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs. And if you hire me, I'm going to get you a meeting. And we were like okay, man, you start Monday. (laughs) So we hired the guy and it turned out he was a great rep. We hired the guy and he gets us the meeting with Goldman Sachs. So I go along with them to the meeting with Goldman Sachs because, you know, I want to see what the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs' office looks like. And it's fantastic. We get there. It's amazing. This guy does a really good pitch of our stuff. And he gets to the point where he shows that way of modeling the relationships. And the guy gets super, super excited, super excited. He's like, whoa, 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 back up. So are you saying if we have two people and they're not in the same company, like they sit on a board together, but they actually work for different companies, can you model that? We're like, yeah, yeah, we can. He says, whoa. So they used to work together, but now they do something different. You can model that. We're like, yeah, yeah, we can. He's like, hang on. I gotta go get my vice president. So he runs down the hall, he comes running back, he's got these three guys, and he's like, show them the thing, show them the thing. So we show, we show them the feature, and they get all excited, same thing. They're like, so if two people belong to the Harvard Club, but they work at totally different companies, you can model that relationship. We're like, yeah, yeah, we can. They get super, super excited. They all start jumping up and down. We close a deal on the spot. This never happened to us before. And so we get this idea, well, Maybe investment bankers really like our stuff. We should try this out on another investment bank. So we go down to Merrill Lynch. Uh, we go and have the meeting. Same thing happens. We show them the feature. Everybody gets excited. Jumping up and down, we close a deal. So we're happy. Things are going good. All of a sudden, revenue is going up. We're all excited. But here's what really happened inside. It sparked a conversation about the positioning. So we were currently positioned as enterprise CRM. And we started having the conversation, maybe what we are is CRM for investment bankers. Now, that doesn't seem like a big change. It seems like a little change. Um, But the way we reasoned it is if we could position like that, then two things might happen. One, maybe the investment banks would come and find us and we wouldn't have to go and find them all the time if we were explicit that that's who we were for. The second thing was maybe we could get out of always being in a head-to-head battle against Siebel who was for sure the leader in enterprise CRM, but not necessarily the leader in CRM for investment banking. So we made the shift and that shift was absolutely, absolutely transformational for the business. So um, the, the best part was, is the way we could position ourselves against the big competitors. So we would walk into a meeting with a banker and say, Hey, we're, we're CRM for investment banks. And the, you could see the bankers the wheels turning and they're like, yeah, yeah we well, what about Siebel? They're in that space, right? They do that thing and we're like, oh, Siebel. We love those guys, what a company. So famous, so big, so much revenue, so fantastic. They're like the world's greatest general purpose CRM for like, I don't know, call centers in India or retailers or manufacturers or something, but not for you, Wolf of Wall Street. You need something special. Let me show you the thing. (laughs) Let me show the thing. And we could cut them out of a deal right from the beginning because we weren't playing this game where we were head to head against them. The trick of this thing is how do you actually get to that? How do you save yourself the pain of years of mispositioning? and like what if we never happened to have pitched an investment banker? How would we have come up with that in the first place? And this became the problem that I really, really wanted to solve, and that's what the book is
1: about. This is so beautiful because at the beginning, you just it's a context sport. You need to get as many conversations per week, per day as you can. But then comes this magic moment. And, and you know when the moment is here because your numbers will tell it or like right. in your case, the excitement of another human being will tangibly be in the room and right. you see it clicks. And now what you did and what maybe 90% of companies out there are not doing is when this moment comes execute on it, double down, right. on, have the courage. Because right now, many, they have this moment, but they will say, well, but investment banks, it's such a small market. We might end up in a narrow... Uh, That's right, this
0: niche How will we make any money in this niche? The conversations we had with our board were difficult. The board hated it. The board was like, well, look, we didn't write you a check to be the, you know, some little niche. they kept calling us lifestyle business, some little lifestyle business, you know, on this thing, how many banks are there? How are you ever gonna make any money doing that? And so the way we convinced them was two things is we said, first of all, it's not like we're selling anything anyways. Like we're literally failing. What are we giving up? We're not giving up anything to try this. That was the first thing. And the second thing was, look, our intention is not to sell the investment banks forever. What we're going to do is we're going to dominate that market because we know we can. And then when we're done with that, we're going to start pushing the boundaries of it. So after we sell the investment banking department, we're going to sell other departments in the investment bank. Once we've done that, then we're going to go sell retail banking because that's adjacent. Once we sell retail banking, then we can say, you know what, Uh, we're CRM for banks not just financial, not just investment banking. And then once we've done that, we could reach out to insurance and say, well, now we're CRM for financial services, which includes insurance. And if we manage to do that, then we're a giant company and we're going to take a run at taking those guys Siebel out uh, because we're going to be great big.
1: And now we talk because the the fear in that moment, and I know that fear myself very well. Everybody knows it right now when right. you find that niche, but you have the fear that it will limit your possibility. Right. It will not. And you just heard it, people, it will not. because it's about the shift. At the beginning, it's about the shift from you chasing them to they, they asking you. That's the no. very first shift, but it will not limit anything. It will create the testimonials, the cases, the results, the numbers, the, the perfect pitch that you have, the entry angle, yeah. and then you go adjacent with a logical order to roll it out and it will be much easier to roll it out because you can say look it worked for a and you are b
0: so the the way it worked with us was exactly like that there was such fear that it was going to limit us we were going to be stuck in a corner we'll never make any money and instead what happened is we repositioned the crm for investment banks All of a sudden, our deals all accelerated because we weren't in this head-to-head bake-off with this giant competitor that we couldn't beat every single time. Every new client we got was another reference account. I mean, once you've closed three investment banks on Wall Street, you look like the king of banking, and it only took you three clients to get there. Um, so we went from being when, uh, when I joined and we did the repositioning before that, we were doing just a little under 2 million revenue after the repositioning for the next 18 months, it was like a rocket to the moon. We literally couldn't hire people fast enough. We went from 2 million revenue to a little tinge under 80 million revenue and a little under 18 months. Um, and then the end of this story is we were growing so fast and causing this big competitor, Siebel, so much pain that they came and acquired us for, $1.7 billion dollars, <laughs> which is a spectacular amount of money. Um, but it, but it's, it's funny because, you know, the whole worry was how will we ever make any money? Oh my goodness. How will we ever make any money? And it was just the opposite. It was the exact thing that allowed us to really accelerate our revenue.
1: Absolutely. I remember so vividly our discussions. We found out quite early that there are two types of CEOs and for some We are not the perfect fit. It's because we are the sprinters. So when they say, hey, let's make a market research, they mean three weeks. We mean three hours. (laughs) And now, some companies, when you say market research in three hours, and they say, yeah, but I meet with my committee in seven days, these are the people we should not work with. And so if you have
0: value, your differentiation, and your differentiation is speed.
1: Exactly. And we said, okay, what about we sort out 98% of the world's companies who are co-led and committee driven. And we just say, I'm sure there are 2% of the world CEOs who are sprinters. They just go for it. They build, they measure, they improve every day. And these people are desperately searching for a consultant that is like that. They don't want the big five. They want something that is like they are.
0: That's exact that's exactly it. So if we come back, so this is a good leading. If we come back to how you actually do this, this is how you do it. It is so first of all, if you think about positioning, we can break positioning apart into five pieces. So it is composed of five key elements. So the, the first is competitive alternatives. If you didn't exist, what would folks do instead? That's the first one. Second one is. Key capabilities, what do you got that the competition doesn't have in terms of features, functions, capabilities? Then it's value, so what for those features? So those features enable a customer to do what? That's your differentiated value. The next piece is who cares about that value? So what are the characteristics of an ideal customer that makes them look at your value and say, that, that, I really want that, and way more than other types of customers. So what are the characteristics of a customer that cares a lot? And then the last bit is market category, which is what are you? Are you email or are you chat? Because those two things are very, very similar, but we have really different expectations about them. Now, when you look at these five things, the first thing you realize is the five components all have a relationship to each other. So if I'm to say, The unique value that I can deliver to clients is completely dependent on my unique capabilities. What am I good at? What do I do? What are the features of my product? But those unique capabilities are only unique when I compare them to a competitive alternative. So all all those things are related, I can't deal with them separately. Then you say, well, who's my customer, my best fit customer? Well, my best fit, this is the customer that cares the most about the value that I can deliver. So those two things are related. I can't figure out one without knowing the other. And then the last thing, market category is a bit like, you know, what's the context I position my offering in such that this value is obvious to these people. So where do I start? And for the longest time, when I was trying to figure this out, I was worried that there was no starting point. You just randomly picked a spot, you worked around the circle, you figured out the other pieces, um, you tested it to see what worked, and if it didn't work, you threw it out. If it did, then you then you you know you ran with it. So um, until. Uh, Again, I won't bore you with the details, but I spent about six months going way down the Clayton. Christensen I love
1: thing. the details. I want yeah, to hear it but, all. So
0: okay, so I went down this Clayton Christensen jobs to be done rat hole, where I was like, well, "How does jobs to be done relate to positioning, and how do these things fit together?" And eventually, I had this epiphany that you actually have to start with competitive alternatives. If you don't, then what you end up with is positioning that is it sounds good. Everybody likes it in the office, but when you take it out to a customer, it doesn't necessarily differentiate you and therefore it doesn't necessarily work. The trick is we, what we think of as competitive alternatives often are not what customers consider to be competitive alternatives. So in software, for example, often we'll position against all the other little software companies that do something like we do um, so we'll say, I get this all the time, little startup comes to me and says, I'll say, oh, what do you do? They'll tell me, I'll say, who do you compete with? They say, oh, they'll list off some list of tiny little companies nobody's ever heard of in the Valley. All these guys, we compete with them. And I'm like, really? Like half of them, I don't even think they have a customer yet. <laughs> like, really? And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, they do what we do. And so our big differentiator, what we're positioned around is ease of use. Because, you know, I can use this thing and it takes 15 clicks to do something, but you use my thing, it's amazing, it only takes two clicks. I'm like, okay, ease of use. But if I ask them, do you ever see these guys in a deal? Like, do you ever lose to them? And often you'll get this, no, actually we don't. And then I said, well, let's put it this way. If you didn't exist, what would a customer do? What are they doing right now? Like, before you showed up, what were they doing to solve that problem? And the answer is often, "Eh, "I'd use a spreadsheet.
1: Or are they, the oh, intern?
0: intern, Yeah. So here's you, right? You're positioning this whole thing around ease of use. You're sitting across from a customer who's got Joey, the intern, and you're saying you should use mine because it's really easy to use. I'm the CEO. I'm like, do you know what's easy to use? Joey. He's super easy. <laughs> I just told him to fill up the spreadsheet and it's done. But like, you're going to have to give me more than that. So if I don't understand who I'm actually getting compared to, I don't understand what makes me unique and different and I don't understand the value I could deliver. So the starting point has to be, what would customers do if you didn't exist? Therefore, what have you got this unique and differentiated capabilities wise and then so what for those capabilities? Why does a customer care? And then I can say, okay, well, if this is my unique value, who cares a lot about that value? That's how I get to my key customers. So let's do it for this CRM for investment banks. So our competitor was clear. It was CEPO. Uh, what did we have that they didn't have? Well, we had this ability to model relationships in a different way. What's the value of that? That was the piece we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know what the value was. We showed it in the demo, and they said, what are we using it for? And we're like, whoop. So the value of that thing to an investment banker is that's the way an investment banker does business. There's a thing called reason to call. And so what it is, is like investment banker goes out, they have lunch with somebody, they're trying to sell them some stuff. These are all high power people. They go back to the office and then they need to actually call some other high power people and get some more meetings. Well, those people don't just take a call for no reason. They're like, you got to give me, like what's why are you calling me? So they need to manufacture a reason to call. Now, if I know that the person I just had lunch with used to sit on the board of this other company or belongs to the Harvard club with them, or actually they used to be in a company together, now I got a reason to call. I pick up the phone and I go, hey, John, I just had lunch with Joey. He's super excited about this this new offering I'm selling, blah, 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 we should have lunch. That's the value. The ability to model relationships that had nothing to do with a company which every other CRM on the planet models relationships like that, but that's not the relationship that a banker cares about. So if we had understood that, then we could have said, well, who cares a lot about that? Who cares a lot about modeling the relationships this way? And the answer to that would have been big ticket, relationship driven, where the person you're selling to the their company relationship isn't the important relationship it's things beyond their company relationship and we would have landed on investment banking had we done that reasoning
1: I love this so much because right now in funky 2020 even the validated companies are now thrown back and need yeah. to recheck really if they are really still positioned well because the the needs of their customers have shifted yeah in some way or form, the budgets have shifted, the, the needs are shifting. So everybody, please go get this book. Obviously, <laughs> because will
0: tell you something about the pandemic and what it's done. So we see this over and over again when we have big shifts in the economy, that what happens is in a really good economy where everything's go, 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 um, companies are usually prioritizing around growth. Like, if you think about it this way, if you sell to businesses, we only have two points of value at a most abstract level. We're either helping businesses make money or we're helping businesses save money. That's it. That's all we got. Two things. We're, we're making more money, save some money. When the economy is really good, makes money is way stronger than saves money because everybody's growing. Everybody wants to make more money. And so you're like, hey, we're going to help you save time. And then here's how that's going to make you more money. Or, hey, we're going to help you do this. Here's how it's going to make more money. Um, But what happens when the economy gets soft or uncertain, often big enterprise buyers will step back and say, you know what, this year isn't about growth anymore. This year is about conserving cash. This year is about doing more with less. And all of a sudden, the priorities shift to. How do we save money? And so if you're out there going, makes money, makes money, makes money, all of a sudden your stuff doesn't look relevant to my new set of priorities. So you'll see this flip-flop over to, oh, you know, you better come in here telling me how this is going to save me some money, because making money is not the thing right now.
1: Absolutely. And in terms of positioning, what I, I'm I'm curious what you see out there in the market. We see many companies uh, like like you do, and it's kind of 50-50 the mm-hmm. ones that uh, are, are f- threatened heavily, and the ones that are exploding in demand. The, the online ones, sh- shortcut, the so- online ones are exploding, the non-online ones, capital intensive, people intensive, they, they don't know if they will survive.
2: You wanna make your sales more repeatable and reliable? Do you want to have less volatility and more growth in your revenue per month? At Strategy Sprints, we do only one thing, strategy and sprints. Strategy means having more revenue through a better offer. In sprints means having more energy in your team every week. Check out if your ROI is as high as it is for most service-based and online businesses and startups we work with, which is over 100%. You can see it in just 15 minutes by going to strategysprints.com slash sales and completing our online exercise. to know what your ROI would be with our accelerator program. We are ready to sprint. Are you?
0: Right. It's so, this has the, been the weirdest economic climate for that reason. Some businesses are growing like crazy. Like it's off the hook. Other businesses are kind of in pause and they don't know what it's like. Other businesses are like in free fall, everything's terrible. So when it first happened, I had a lot of clients come back to me that where we had done positioning work in the last few years, come back and say, I don't know. What what should we do? Like, should we should we attempt to react to this right now or should we wait it out? How do we know? And the answer to that question is, well, what are your customers doing? Are they waiting it out? Are they doing something? Are they shifting their priorities? Are they shifting budget? So when things change rapidly like this, this is a very good time to check in with your customers. Now, one of the things I love as a tactic more than almost anything else is having a customer advisory board. So if you have a customer advisory board, what you've got is a bunch of customers that are committed to acting as advisors for your business when things are rough. So if you have a customer advisory board, even though everything's going nuts for your customer's business too, they're gonna to actually take your call in the middle of March when everything's like Bleh. <laughs> If you don't have a customer advisory board or you don't have great relationships with your customers right now, it's gonna be a little bit harder to get people to take your call when everything looks like a big emergency right now. So the customers I work with that had advisory boards were like, man, this is amazing. I've got this set of customers I can tap into to find out how we should react. The ones that didn't, uh, it took them a little minute uh, to get the customers to actually even respond to them so they could figure out how they should respond
1: in turn. This is so important. Mm-hmm. Never forget, we're the vital parties of your business. It's always the structural coupling to the market, to your user, to right. your user. That is that That should be in the front and center of everything you do. I am so excited that we will continue this journey with you, but we go through their segment that we call the Strategy Award first. If you could pick only one person that when everybody zigs, they are zagging, and but they are doing the right thing. Who is this person? Well, you know,
0: it relates to what we just talked about in terms of being able to shift on the fly with your strategy. So right now I sit on the board of a company called Sampler. And the CEO there is Marie Chevry Schwartz. And she has done this absolutely, in my opinion, masterful job of navigating this whole shift in priorities and things happening with COVID. So what these folks do is they do product sampling. So if you've ever gotten a sample of a new chocolate bar or a snack or cereal handed to you by somebody in a grocery store or handed to you by somebody on the street corner, that's product sampling. Consumer packaged goods brands spend billions a year doing that when they launch a new product. What Sampler does is that in a digital way. So they actually have a database of people that want samples, they match them to people that have samples, and then they deliver the samples to your house. After you get the sample, the brand can survey and find out what you did with it. Did you like it or not? Did you go and buy some or not? And so it's this way more efficient way to do sampling. So they're having a good business, they're growing pretty good, COVID hit. And for two weeks, right after we went into lockdown, all the CPG brands essentially stopped all their sampling programs, like they just stopped. And they said, oh, sampling, it's actually dead. We can't do it anymore, <laughs> we're done. We can't stand on the street corner in a hazmat suit it out granola all of ours, we can't do it. So uh, Marie and her team reacted very quickly and essentially developed a point of view around what they call contactless product sampling. And so they're out there in the media talking to the media about, you know, we're not gonna go sample lipstick at the counter anymore and put it on our lips and potentially other people's lips have this. We're not doing this anymore. We're not taking samples at a grocery store. The world has changed. And if we wanna to continue to do sample, sampling, because we believe that that works, We're going to have to figure out how to do this in a contactless way. What you really want to do is have these samples delivered to people in their home. And so they were out super early talking about this, positioning themselves in that way. uh, And the CPG brands all put their heads up and went, wait a minute, we can do sampling. We're just going to do it like this. So they managed to reap the benefit of this big change in priorities, this big change in what the brands want to do. So that that super accelerated their business. Their growth is off the hook. They raised a round of financing like in the early days of COVID, which is amazing. Um, and so anyways, I'm really impressed with how that company did that shift in response to a big, big shift that initially looked like it was going to kill their market. When in fact, it's the best thing that ever happened to their market.
1: Beautiful example of shifting in in the appropriate time because it's not always about speed. Even we, the sprinters, we know it's not always about speed. It's about appropriate reaction time. So I always think of water. Water does never overreact, does never underreact. It hits something, it hits a stone, it will pass by, it will react. And same thing you need to do with your... With your operations and with your offering. So whenever something changes in your users world in your markets, now you need to adapt. If it's changing fast, you need to go fast. If it's if it's slow, stay with it. It's about the structural coupling. And um, I am so pumped that we go and continue your journey. So while you do this, our our team is is also summarizing and uh, and putting into the show notes your 10 steps and but let's continue how how did it go from there
0: so first step is we have to understand who our true competitive alternatives are we need to understand that that's the first step so um, there's a few gotchas in that like i explained like sometimes your competitor isn't obvious sometimes the competitor is status quo and that's doing things manually or using the intern but once i understand who i really compete with or what the alternative is in the minds of customers then I can say, well, what do I have that the customer doesn't have? This is an easy step. You know, Tech founders love this step because this is just a big list of features. Here's all the things I could do that Joey the intern can't do. Here it is, big long list. Um, next, you have to take those features and you have to answer the question, so what for customers? Why does a customer care about this? What is the actual value that this feature enables for customers? And usually when we do that, if we start mapping into value, we can theme it out into a set of value themes. We usually get to two or three. So we're like, you know, we're going to do this thing for you, this thing for you, this thing for you, and these are the features that enable us to deliver on that value. Once we have that, then the next step is to say, okay, this is the value we can deliver that's differentiated from the alternatives, Who cares a lot about that value? And what are the characteristics of a customer that cares? And much like you were saying earlier, like it's not, it needs to be actionable. So it needs to be in enough detail that you can say, well, I want to go after CEOs that want to go fast. Well, how do I recognize a CEO that wants to go fast? How do I build a list of CEOs? Where do CEOs that want to go fast hang out? What kind of companies do they run? What stage are they at? So if I needed to build marketing campaigns, to go after folks that look like this. How do I build campaigns? If I have salespeople and they're gonna make a list of people to call, how do they make a list? And so we do that so that we understand um, where to focus our marketing and sales efforts. So that's the who cares a lot about this stage. And then the last bit is this idea of market category, which is kind of like the answer to the question, what are you? Now market category is an interesting one because it orients people in a certain direction. So if I say my product is enterprise CRM, well, then then you're gonna say, well, I know who your competitor is. You know, for us back then, it was Siebel. So you say, well, you compete with Siebel. So I expect you to do all these things that Siebel does, and you know, I expect that you sell to the same kind of companies as Siebel, and I expect that. Your, I expect your pricing to be less than Siebel because they're number one and you're not. <laughs> so you don't get to charge as much. Whereas if I say, well, I'm CRM for investment banks, well, then, then, all those assumptions change a little bit. Like um, now I'm saying, well, I'm CRM, so I'm like Siebel, but I'm for investment banks. So I expect you to not be exactly the same. I expect you to have something special for banks. And, and I realize that maybe i give up a few features to get that. Um, the other thing where it gets interesting is pricing, right? That goes for investment banks. Does that mean you're more or less than Siebel? You could actually charge more, maybe, right? The investment bankers are special, and you got a special thing. So it changes the assumptions that you make. So this last bit, which is market category, is like, what is the best context of text to position this offering in so that this value is obvious to these people and they're sort of oriented in the right way? So that's the last thing, market category. So we have to do it in that order because all the things kind of build on the rest.
1: This is so powerful. And um, now, where can people find these, these steps and, and read more about it?
0: Yeah, so um, but so my book lays it out. So I work, as a consultant, I work one on one with companies. And we do workshops where I help companies go through this process. But companies that don't work with me, you know, can see the exact same process that I use with clients are all laid out in that book, which is called Obviously Awesome. But it's my attempt to give you the user manual on how to do this yourself.
1: Absolutely. What is one book on a professional level that inspired you recently? Uh,
0: You know it's funny like so i have a handful of books that have been super influential on my work that i keep coming back to and lately uh, the one that i'm spending a lot of time with that i think i've read seven times and i bet you i'm going to read it another 70 uh is called the challenger sale by these guys uh, it's by the corporate ex- i have it sitting right here because i keep reading it over and over again <laughs> this is a great book if you sell um uh complex things or bigger deals to companies. This book is really interesting. And what's really inspiring about it is the research that it's based on. So it's based on research about how do, what's the difference between a really successful sales rep and a less successful sales rep? And so what do they do that less successful reps do? The other bit of research in here that's really interesting is how do customers like to buy and what do they like in a salesperson? And so one of the big things that comes out of this is that um, customers are really wanting to understand the market better and that sales reps that can come in and deliver what what these guys call commercial teaching and give people a way to think about the market will be more successful. If you think about that, that's another way of saying, if if they can come in and say, the market looks like this, we're positioned here, the other folks are positioned here, here's when you want them and here's when you want us, then you're going to be more successful. The root of that is strong positioning. So I'm doing a lot of thinking about challenger sale and how it relates to positioning right now.
1: Beautiful. What did you recently change your mind about?
0: Well, you know, it relates to that. So recently I felt like, you know, My jam is positioning. I'm teaching people how to do positioning. I'm teaching you how to break it apart into pieces, how to get clarity on those pieces. And then once you have it, marketing can go do their thing, sales can go do their thing. Um, And in my book, I stop short of talking about what the best way to communicate your positioning is. Now I have a way that I've always done that and you know which I refer to sometimes as your point of view pitch right so if somebody says what do you do there's a way for you to respond to that saying this is our point of view on the market and how it gets sliced up and we think we're the best solution for these kind of customers right here and I assumed when I wrote my book that That was kind of obvious and and more than that, that good salespeople and good sales executives know how to do that, or at least a good marketing executive team with a good sales executive would kind of know how to do that. But what I'm starting to see in the last 18 months since the book has been out, that I can't actually stop short of teaching people how to do the communication bit. It's not enough to just know the positioning. You actually need to know how to take that positioning and translate it into um, a point of view pitch. Now, in the work I do with clients, we did it. We do it in the workshops. I just never taught anybody how to do it. In the book, I didn't bother going there because I was like, well, it's up to you. You're going to have to figure that out. Um, but now I'm really interested. I, I've changed my mind on that. its I don't think it's trivial. I think it's quite hard. And I especially think it's hard because now I'm trying to, I'm attempting to teach people how to do that. Um, and that's proving to be way harder than I thought it was going to be
1: you know we we ask for the nps the net promoter score automatically all clients all the time and um, one thing that comes up is communication so there is a there is a question that we ask what what else do you need how can we help you what's the next training that you need and they say communications and I, i'm like you i i never built the communication module until now because i thought right. you go and transpone this into your sales script anyway it will become anyway three slides that everybody gets it's not it's so no. so yes it's uh, we are still needed also in translating that into action and making making sure that it happens
0: yeah absolutely
1: what would you say about the process of selling and finding a good, A good number for the selling because it became 1.7 billion. That's a good number. And sometimes you don't get good numbers. What did you learn about that process?
0: You mean in in terms of valuation of the company or just about
1: like? Well, staying in the field of how we communicate what the value is because valuation is always a very, very subjective thing. And it's all about the story that you can convey and the systems that you've built.
0: So it's interesting. So I've been through six acquisitions where I was the com- you know I was in the company that was getting acquired. And then uh, at one point in my career I ran a team inside IBM and I was on the buying side. So I actually bought six or seven companies. And the difference between those two things like what we thought was important to buyers <laughs> versus what the buyers were actually looking for blew my mind so um different acquirers acquire for different reasons is the first thing that i learned and and the thing that i found the most surprising is a strategic buyer generally does not care that much about your customer base That blew my mind. I thought, well, you're buying us because you get to buy all these banks, you know, we're working with all these banks. But when you look at it, the company that acquired us, I mean, they were were giant. They had hundreds and hundreds of customers and we had like a couple dozen. (laughs) They didn't care about that couple dozen customers. What they cared about was two things. One was they cared about taking us out of the market. We were causing them pain and they didn't want us to get any bigger than we already were. And so for them, we were a thorn in their side. You know, their stock was high. This was peak bubble when we got acquired. They took us out of the market mainly for that. The second thing they bought us for was we had um, a deeply technical team that had built this product that had this distinct thing that they could not copy and they wanted that. So they wanted both the, the, the product and the way it worked, but they also wanted the team that had built it to come inside and help them build a thing that looked like that, interesting. When I worked at IBM and we were assessing acquisitions, um, we were very interested in two things. One, we were interested in tech that we couldn't build, so we wanted, the, and we wanted the developers. So we wanted the tech, we wanted the developers, and we wanted to bring that in. So we would identify holes in our product and where could these things plug them. Um, but the other thing, if it was a bigger acquisition, You would get a better valuation and in a bigger acquisition if you could prove that you could sell not to anyone, but to what an IBM account looks like. So, for example, when I was there, we had acquired a company. It was was bigger than a billion dollar acquisition. And part of how we did the valuation for that was they had thousands and thousands of customers. But a lot of those customers were mid-market businesses. And so we, we frankly didn't care about them. Like IBM makes all their money off 100 big named accounts. And so we looked at how many of those big named accounts was the company already in? Did they successfully deliver in those, and literally it literally was three or four accounts, in those three or four named accounts. And then we looked at all the other accounts and said, can we just plug this thing onto the price list and sell it to everybody else and make that work too? And the answer was yes. So that was worth a lot of money to us because we could prove how we could make a lot of money out of that. So it was a combination of skills, teams, could I put it on the price list? How much revenue was it going to drive if I brought it in? Um, And all those things put together. So, you know, trying to engineer all that stuff is kind of hard you know in the case of uh the company where we sold for 1.7 you know we also had fantastic timing (laughs) like just in that we we were literally acquired at the peak of the bubble um when that company's stock was you know trading at the highest it it ever had been or would ever be actually um And and so, you know, we got multiples based on that because everything was trading and we were growing very, very, very quickly at the time. So we could say, look, you know, we're only making 80 million revenue now, but we're going to triple that next year. We're going to 10 times that next year. And if I look at this out in three, four years, we're a giant, giant company and a big pain in your side. So they paid big money to make sure that didn't happen.
1: There is so much to unpack there. Understand why they are buying and how this intervention of buying is going to shape their trajectory. Understand what problem they are solving by buying it. And if it's a negative or a positive problem, so is to get you out of the way or to use you as the platform to jump exactly then understand also what they what they intend to do in terms of adjacent. are they big and are they buying you because they have all the other elements and they, they just need the chain completed right. or they want to complete the chain. So many different reasons you have to understand why they want to buy. That's and awesome. then there's the timing thing. You cannot change the timing, but you can understand it to negotiate. Right. Because that's part of the story. And then you know who is on the stronger part of the negotiation wow you brought so much knowledge april this is amazing this is a positioning masterclass and um who should be my next guest what's that sorry who should be my next guest
0: who should be your next guest um so what i was thinking um yesterday i was at a conference and um i i heard bob mesta speak and i don't know if you don't know bob mesta he's One of the original architects of the jobs to be done methodology this was hugely influential on my work Um, he uh, was one of the original folks that worked with Clayton Christensen on that work Um, he's a very big brain bright guy big strategic thinker I think your audience would really love him he's just put out a book called um, demand side sales and so it's very in line with my thinking around you know how do we actually teach customers how to buy and and in the sales process and so his book is all about that so i think you should have him on he's great
1: thank you so and much
0: he's just an excellent human being like you would just enjoy him because he's great and he's full of amazing stories like he's worked on 35,000 products and things like that it's like he's amazing
1: i like him already and um, where can people stick around and find more of what you are creating
0: Uh, So my website is aprildunford.com and, you know, uh, my stuff is there. I am uh, doing a lot of speaking at conferences right now. So you might see me virtually on a virtual conference stage. I'm fairly active on Twitter. That's kind of my only social media. So I'm at Dunford on Twitter too. You can follow me there.
1: Thank you so much, April, for this positioning audio masterclass and come back soon. Thanks so much for
2: having me. This is great. We all know that working in sprints is better, but how do we know what we should work on? You're in luck because we have a 15-minute exercise that will give you complete clarity on where to take your project next. Go to strategysprints.com to complete our short exercise and meet one-on-one with an expert sprint coach to identify your number one bottleneck. Hey everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the strategy show. Make sure to like this video below and subscribe so that you can stay up to date with every episode of the strategy show. Get daily CEO tips from CEOs for CEOs.